I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Realm Presents Dark Heights Episode 15 Tess Later that night, after everything, after what took place in the mansion with the woman in white, after what took place with Will, after the woods, I drove in the rain as far as I could go. I called Zack. He came. He found me. I was wrapped in his jacket. I was in the passenger seat of his car. That was when I said, I have to go back to nightfall. Zack nodded slowly. Okay, he said. Okay. Turning the steering wheel, pulling out of the gas station onto the highway, turning toward Park Heights. I glanced back. It looked like my station wagon had been abandoned there at the pumps for decades, not minutes, a heap of junk rusting fast forward in the aftermath of the rain. What is that anyway? Zack said. Nightfall. It sounds like some sort of vampire crap. No, it's the theme of the fundraiser, at Arson. You were there tonight, at this fundraiser? I was. And then you just left? On your own? Before it was over? I got away. 
You got away from what? I felt my heart pounding. I said, I want to tell you, Zack. I'm going to tell you I am. You have to give me some time. He looked at me quickly and then looked away, as if it hurt him to see me. He accelerated out of a bend in the highway, and the car's high beams swept across a wall of pine trees, branches slicing the light. I had decided to go back to Arson. I knew that I had to, but now I felt it again, that panic. It was rushing into me just like before. I was afraid, my thoughts all scattered, no breath in the lungs to breathe. Zack said, You've got all the time you need, Tess. You know that. I'm not pressuring you. He paused. But I have to ask this much. How did you get way out here at this gas station in the middle of nowhere? I drove. Don't stop. Don't think. Don't cry. Drive. When I tried to remember coming out of the woods between Arson and my car in the parking lot, at first there was nothing. And then there was this. Looking down from above, you can see a girl sprinting out from between the trees, stumbling right down, staggering back up. Her dress is torn into pieces, and there is blood all over her. Blood in her hair, blood on her face, blood smeared across her mouth like lipstick. You can see her running barefoot into the parking lot, and there's no sound because she's holding back the sound of her screams. There's only one hired valet at this time sitting on the grass. He's on his phone and doesn't see her. No one sees her. She doesn't have a handbag anymore, but she never locks the station wagon because no one would steal it, and the keys are hooked onto the sun visor so that they drop into her shaking hands when she folds it down. She starts the car. She drives. That girl is me. A few hours ago, that was me. Zack said, You left arson in your station wagon, and you drove out here until you ran out of gas. Yes, I said. I drove until I was out of gas. He waited for me to tell him more. I think I was in shock. After what happened. A shiver went through me from fingertips to toes. I think I'm still in shock. Is this something that happened to the fundraiser? Zack asked. Remember a few seconds ago when you said I had all the time I need? I meant it, Tess. I did. But you want to know. I have to know. Don't go back, Tess. Make him stop the car. Don't go back to arson. Turn around before it's too late. I said, there was a man. Stupid girl, he said. Zack became still. What do you mean? In the woods. It was after I came out of the mansion. I just wanted to get out of there. I wanted so much just to leave and go back to my life. Now I was telling it. And I knew there was a shortcut through the woods to my car. Right, Zack said between the parking lot by the front gate and that tacky fountain. I'd forgotten that Zack had spent time there with the Severins, that he'd loved Lina, or thought he'd loved her. I went into the trees, I said, because the air was cool and there was light left to see. I was alone, and I thought I was free of them. That's all I wanted, just to be free of them. Who are you talking about? The Severins! Lina and Will and their father. Who are they, Zack? Something's not right, there's something wrong with them, and we don't know what it is. You saw them in the woods? I started shaking. No, I said. And then it came out. A long, sobbing cry, as if something had been released. No, no, there was a man. He was waiting for me, he knew my name. Tess Bellamy, I heard him whisper. 
You're even more beautiful like this. And he... he had a knife. He came at me. Zack made a constricted sound, cut short. Oh, Tess. No, 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 Tess. I got away at first. He let me run away, but I knew I wouldn't make it. He was faster than me, so I hid. Stillness can be unbearable, silence terrifying. Tell me that he couldn't find you, Zack said softly. That's not what happened. His hand went into my hair and yanked my head back, bashing it against the tree trunk. I said, I couldn't get away from him. I tried. I fought him. My hand flew up. I clawed him across his face. And he was about to kill me. His knees pressed into my chest, one hand closing around my throat. He raised his knife. Then it plunged down. I didn't tell Zack all of it then, in the passenger seat of his car, going back to nightfall. The solid white line in the center of the highway slipped right and left and out into the dark past the headlights. I couldn't find a voice for what I had to say. I could barely even remember what had happened. Since then, it's something that's gone deeper and deeper down inside of me, something I hold on to as tightly as I can hold on to anything. Here it is. He drove the knife down. And it stopped. The tip of the knife had gone into the skin of my stomach, just the very tip. I couldn't even feel it. The man in the bomber jacket, he was frozen. He was held in place. I could see the strain in the muscles of his neck, but he couldn't move at all. His eyes rolled in their sockets and his chest moved in out, in out with rapid shallow breaths. A thin, high-pitched whining sound trailed out from between his clenched tight teeth. All night, since driving out to the gas station, I had been seeing phantom images of Lina. I had seen her at the back of the gas station, at the side of my station wagon, and then on the hood of Zack's car as we prepared to leave. None of these were the first time. Right then, in that frozen moment, I saw, as if through a haze, the apparition of Lina Severand wrapped like a spider around the body of the man in the bomber jacket. She was behind him. She was around him. She went through him like a ghost. The white strands of her elongated hands pulled at his face, clawed his eyes. Thin, stretched legs folded into a cross against his chest. I blinked, and I saw this. I blinked, and it was gone. I didn't think about what I'd seen. It made no impression. This was my moment. I pushed on the man's black-gloved hands, and I lifted the knife up and out of my stomach. I struggled up. On my knees, I pried the knife from his fingers. I held the handle in my own cold hands. I jammed the knife up into him, and it made a snicking, popping sound when it went through the bomber jacket. I rammed the knife up and up again into his body. Up, up, and blood poured down. At last, he moved. Released from the hold that had him, he fell on top of me, fell onto his knife, which embedded itself. A long, ragged breath came out of him, and then nothing. He couldn't do it, I said to Zack in the car, not telling him any of it. He raised the knife, but he couldn't do it. 
And I... You got away, he said. I took the knife from him. I stabbed him with it. What? Tess, are you... You took his knife? I stabbed him again and again. My God! I killed him. There it was. I killed the man in the bomber jacket. And I dropped the knife and I ran. And I came out of the woods and got into my car and I drove. So now you know why I have to go back. No, Tess, Zack was saying. No, we have to go to the police right now. I, I don't know, C call them, drive to a station. Why do you want to go back there? It doesn't make any sense. I have to show them where the body is, I said. You're not thinking right. Let's pull over and call 911 like you said before. No, I shouted. Take me back there, just take me back. We'll call from Arson. We'll call 911 from the parking lot. I don't think we have to do that. Zack said slowly. I have to go back now, Zack. Now! Suddenly, I was shrieking. My hands raked at the dashboard, at the seatbelt. I want it to be over! I pleaded, sobbing. It'll never be over unless I go back there and find him! Tess, he said. It's all right. We don't have to. It's already over. You're safe, and I'm with you, and nothing's going to hurt you. Don't say that! Well, I'm going to. Nothing can hurt you now. Zack, I said sadly. Zack, sweet, noble hero that you wanted to be, what would have happened if I'd been able to choose your happy ending? If that date of ours had gone differently, if I was different, if I was someone who could have been yours, would we have made out in the parking lot outside of your high school prom while the film flickers to a fade, you in your best white suit and me in the dress I made to be pretty and pink? Instead, it's me in your car, in a blood-soaked black dress, driving back to the place where I stabbed a man to death. The panic was leaving me, my mind slowing down. At the side of the highway, I saw one burned-out pine tree on its own, black surrounded by green. I was only beginning to understand that I would bear this night forward with me forever. With a sudden sadness... I knew that nothing was ever going to be the same. I don't want to drive us to Arson, Zack said finally. We're almost there, I said. We had reached the end of the highway where it met Beach Boulevard, north of the town. From here, Beach Boulevard ran south, touching on everything in Park Heights. Summit estates where Dylan lived, Arson to the west, then down through the scattered neighborhoods, the clutches of darkened houses, to the main drag where the green machine and crazies sat together, past the arts nexus, past the turnoff to my house, to Kevin Cho's house, down the hill at last to the wellness center, where it crouched at the edge of Los Angeles. I don't think we should go there, Zack said again, more forcefully. I wanted to reach over and put my hand against the side of his face, his beautiful, stupid hair was in front of his eyes again. Zack turned right at the lights on Summit Drive and Beach Boulevard. It was inevitable now. Arson was drawing us toward it. Thank you, I said. You've been through hell, Tess. We need to get help. We will. Right now, before we go back to Arson. But we're here, I said. To our right... The trees had receded behind the tall ironwork fencing along the side of the estate. The front gate 
would be just ahead. What the hell is that? Zack said suddenly. Turn your lights on, man. There was a car coming toward us on the road. It was a black Mercedes. No headlights on. Then, something impossible. The car exploded upwards into the air as if thrown by an incredible, unimaginable force. Tess! Zack shouted, throwing his arm across me. The black Mercedes slowly spun in the dark above us like a satellite above the atmosphere, turning and turning at the height of its flung trajectory. It fell down onto us with a crash, a scream of splintered metal slicing metal. Impact, flung out against the seatbelt's limit, suspended in that pocket of weightlessness, the shattered, cut glass glitter of the blown out windshield, then the returning heaviness, crushing weight. Heads snapped forward against the sting of the airbag shockwave. Roof of the car coming down around me, crumpling like a sheet of paper clutched in a closing hand. Pain began. So did mercy. Everything flickered out to nothing. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Majo, begin journal entry. In the small square garden enclosed by the walls of the high hedges, Lena lay unconscious on the stone bench, breathing gently. One arm folded across her midsection, and the other dangling down so that her fingertips touched the grass. To all the world, she appeared to be sweetly asleep. I knew the difference. Her mind had shut down, protecting itself, the moment she had reached the furthest edge of her power. Spasms had racked her body as I held her. I didn't know what she had done. She had mentioned a name, Tess, that I recognized. A friend of hers who must have been at the party that night. Someone who was in trouble. Then I had seen what she had seen, and then she forced herself to concentrate, 
focusing, gathering, driving her will and awareness out and away from the self. Too far out, too fast, too much. In a few seconds, she had collapsed into my arms. Gently, I had laid her down on the bench, and then the seizures had come over her. I could have eased this pain, but I was afraid of working my own power out in the open, far from my sanctum. We remained like this for a few minutes, hidden in our private garden, away from the eyes of the rest of the guests. I waited. If anyone had come in upon us, I would have made certain Lena wasn't disturbed. Nothing was more important for her than this unconsciousness, this recovery. Finally, she woke, eyes fluttering open, taking in deep breaths to fill impatient lungs. She shifted, sitting upright, holding both hands to the sides of her head. Tess killed me, she said after a time. I paused. What does that mean? She killed him. Lena corrected herself. But it felt... It was awful. It was terrifying. I was inside his mind, holding him back, and she stabbed him. But I felt it, too. She put her hands on her stomach. I felt a knife go in. There was... There was something I saw. A white fire that was billowing out below me, and it was burning over the top of a dark opening like a well that went down and down. I said to her, you experienced his death. No thanks, she said, shaking her head. Won't be doing that again. You could have been drawn into it easily. You could have been killed. It took real strength to separate yourself. Then I tried to stand up without my help, then wavered woozily on her feet. Well, she said, so much for a real strength. I stood up next to her and put my arm out, and she steadied herself. You need to rest. No, she said. I have to find Tess. It's awful what she went through. She needs me. Something occurred to her. Exactly how long was I out for? Only half an hour. I was expecting you'd sleep longer, but you recovered quickly. Well, you know me. I'm... Her eyes went wide suddenly. Lena, there was a sudden depth and distance in her dark eyes that I hadn't seen before, as if she was looking in on something far away, or something was looking in on her. In all the time I had spent with her while she had been exploring her nascent power, I had watched her closely, carefully, and this was nothing I recognized. It was a different kind of power, I felt as if it came from someplace outside of who she was. She blinked rapidly, and the distance disappeared. She said, We're in trouble. Lena, I said, What's going on? She took my hand. You have to leave. I glanced down at the grass. The oversized top hat that had been part of my costume for the evening had fallen off when I had caught Lena and it lay upended next to the stone bench, its circular opening a deeper black against black. I'm not going anywhere, Lena, I said, until you tell me what's going on. No, she said in a voice that was the voice of a small child. She was pulling on my arm. 
No, no, you have to get out of here. You need to tell me what's happening. She looked up at me. I can't. It's all right, Lena, I said. No, it's not all right. It's going to be all right. No, it's not fucking all right. And you don't know. You don't know what I did. It doesn't matter. It matters, she said. She took a step back from me. I'm not what you think I am. Then tell me what you are. I can't. I can't tell you. Tears made darkened tracks down her cheeks. You have to go. My father knows what I did to help Tess. He's looking for me. Who is your father, Lena? You don't want to know. Tell me who he is. And tell me who you are. She had backed away from me until the stone bench was behind her and she couldn't move farther back. I'm sorry, she said, crying. I'm sorry. Tell me. We're watchers, Gabriel. My hands clenched into fists. I don't believe it. My father is a watcher. You call him the scholar. And you? I'm a watcher. Like he is. Like my brother. It's not possible. There are no children. We're the first ones. They found a way. The watchers, we found a way to create life. My fists opened. I looked down at the white half-moon indentations my fingernails had driven into the palms of my hands. At the heart of me, there is a brokenness. Broken from living in the world. Broken from my training. Broken every time I reach for it. The power that comes to me out of the very brokenness itself. It came to me then. Coruscating within, alive, electric with the urge to strike down my many adversaries. That night at the diner, you knew I was an Archimage, didn't you? I took a step toward her, and she flinched back. You knew what I was, and yet you came to me anyway at the bed and breakfast. You came to me and pretended innocence. Power licking at the edge of restraint. Why, Lena? The only thing I've done for years is run from the Watchers, nothing more. My existence is desperation. And then you... You gave me hope, Lena. You made me believe I could choose to fight back, and all of it was lies and deception. I stepped forward once more. Why did you come to me that day? Why have you done this to me? I don't know, she cried. I don't know. At first it was my secret. I cherished having a secret. It was dangerous and it was exciting to be what I am and be with you and Archimage. And then you were showing me so much. You taught me about myself. I couldn't stop it. I didn't want to give up what you gave to me. I was teaching you to be a chantress. That's not what you are. You showed me what I am. It's something no one knows is there. Are you telling me that your father doesn't know what you've done? He doesn't. I didn't tell him anything. She gasped through her tears. Except that now he's looking for me because of what I did for Tess. Now he knows that something is different about me, and that means you have to get out of here. Lena, I said slowly, did you bring me here tonight to trap me? Power snapped and sparked between the tips of my fingers. 
She shook her head. No, I didn't want my father to know about you. Is that the truth? I just wanted you here tonight. For me. I thought you'd be proud of me. You're my teacher. My own teacher. Her voice rose into a shriek. Mine and no one else's. Nana, what are you saying? I don't have anything of my own. I have nothing, nothing. She sank down to her knees and covered her face with her hands. I can't be what they want me to be. They do things to me, Gabriel. They hurt me. They hurt me and I can't take it anymore. Her hands dropped away. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be what they are. I moved. I crossed the grass. Lena stared at me, startled, afraid. I lifted her up and took hold of her in an embrace. She wrapped her arms around me and buried her face into my chest, crying freely. I said, told you it's all right. I'm sorry, she cried. Please forgive me, Gabriel. Forgive me. I'm so sorry. Listen to me, Lena. I said, lifting her face by her chin so that her eyes met mine. Use what we've worked on. Find me. No, she pleaded. Don't leave me here. We don't have a choice, but you'll find me again, and we'll continue. She wiped her eyes, sniffling. I said, do you understand? She nodded her head. Good. Now, step away from me. When she didn't move, I pushed her away with enough force that she stumbled and fell backward onto the grass. I stepped back from her to make enough room. That's enough! Don't move! A woman was there at the entrance to the garden, framed in the opening between the vertical lines of the hedges. Open stance, arms raised, pistol aimed at my head. The way she controlled her heavy breathing and the sheen of perspiration on her face suggested she had been running. You don't have to pull the trigger, I said. The woman's focused gaze strayed to one side, to where, behind me, Lena was rising from the ground. No! I shouted. Lena, no! There was a snarl from Lena. She lifted her hand. The woman at the entrance to the garden flew into the air as if knocked backward from the force of an explosion. Then a man appeared right next to where the woman had just been standing. He did not have his weapon drawn. It was Juan Garcia Madero. All at once, a keening sound pierced the inside of my skull, an alarm. The boundaries of my sanctum, my place of power, had been breached. I received the image of agents of the Watchers, more than one trinity, moving in on the bed and breakfast, crouched in a column along the fence at the back alley, assault rifles free to hand. Jenny and Karen, they were innocent of all of this. Madero looked at me with haunted eyes and a haggard face that had aged a great deal since the last time I had seen him. It felt to me as if he had stopped being alive some time ago, had subsided into an echo of himself. Next time, I said to him. I focused on the gateway that the high hedge made, opening into this garden. The empty space contained in the frame of the hedge, the shape of a portal. I traveled. Immediately arriving in the backyard of the bed and breakfast, I stood on the stone path next to the koi pool. 
One trinity, three men in full assault gear, moving through the metal tables and chairs on the backyard patio, the outside floodlight reflecting yellow-green from the visors of their matte black recon helmets. All three whirled around at the unmistakable impression of my arrival. The exit vacuum hissed through the air and the pop of pressure against the inner ear, their automatic weapons leveled. Flagging position! snapped the central agent of the Trinity, knocking a patio chair aside, crouching down, taking aim. His colleagues darted sideways, left and right. I spoke aloud a phrase, words of finality, invoking my will. When I have done what must be done, then nothing will remain. Reaching into the brokenness, taking hold. With a gesture, flinging out the work of power, the interruption in reality, the Archimagean Thomosphere, a latticework of perfected mathematics expressed in light and fire blossomed into orbit around me, its flawless circumference radiating with incandescent energy. Where the sphere touched the material world, it burned and obliterated everything, setting fire to the lawn, smashing the stones of the path, boiling the water in the koi pool. Open fire! Open fire! came the command. The Trinity discharged their rifles in three round bursts, a sound that hammered into the back of the teeth. The barrage of bullets entered the thermosphere and burned away. I began to move forward. Fall back! Fall back! Move, move, move! Too late for you, my friends. I opened three excoriations, like solar flares striking out from the rim of the sun. Three threads of fire unfurled from the surface of the thermosphere. More rifle shots as the Trinity maintained their angles of suppressive fire. Another hail of bullets, and the thermosphere, weakened by the production of excoriations, allowed the rounds to pass close to my face and body before the bullets liquefied. I set the excoriations out. One ribbon of light entered the head of the leftmost Trinity agent, exploding. The second struck its man in the chest, and his body spun backward, lifted up, slamming into the house. The kitchen windows shattered. The final excoriation cut the third man in half. Burning hands grasped at me from behind. Another trinity. One man brave enough to have thought to reach into the thermosphere. I jumped away and spun about to face these new attackers. The thermosphere was instantly extinguished, unsustained without my focus. The man who had reached into the arc of it was now fully on fire, screaming, turning round and round senselessly. Finally, he leapt into the koi pool. Two more men in full combat armor and recon helmets. Both of them were closing in, fast. I did not have my preferred weapon, crybaby. It was in my room in the house, as were all of my belongings. I reached one hand back as the first man came in with his tactical baton. An automatic rifle lodged in the wreckage of the tables and chairs on the patio flew into the air. I caught it with both hands, lifting it out from my chest as the agent's baton came down. His weapon jounced away from the parrying rifle. Now shift to the side, step forward, swinging. The agent's baton came in and whipped past me, dealing a glancing blow to the side of my left arm. At the same moment, I drove the butt of the rifle into the unprotected part of his neck. He went right down. The third man of the Trinity had stopped. He put out a hand, palm forward, as if to call for a truce. I turned the rifle in my hands, riding it, then firing whatever ammunition remained in the cartridge. The agent took the gunfire straight on, and his body crumpled to the ground in a shower of blood that hung in the air like mist. The man I had struck with the rifle was moaning, gasping for air, crawling on his belly away from me. 
I dropped the spent rifle onto the ground and went to him, turned him over onto his back, knelt down, straddling his chest. When I detached and lifted away his helmet, I saw that his face was youthful, clean-shaven, handsome even. I lifted my fist and brought it down. He struggled, and I held him down with my left hand. My right hand's fist cracked down against the bridge of his nose, then smashed down into his mouth, then again and again. Rage. Hate and rage coursing in me, bringing power to every one of the blows I hammered down under the handsome face of the young Trinity agent. Rage and hate for every betrayal, for every death of one of my brothers, for every watcher in the world. My left hand throbbed, and my right hand was a ruin. Breathing hard, spent, I staggered up and away. I started to laugh, and it became a cough. Gingerly, with numb fingers, I reached up to my face. I'd forgotten I was still wearing the fundraiser's costume's black half-mask. What demonic vision of me had these agents seen before their deaths? I pulled the mask away. Its slick black surface was spattered with spots of bright blood. The fight was over. I forced my breathing to slow down. Small fires burned everywhere around me. The lawn, the garden, the wooden back porch addition charred black and lit with licking yellow flames. I went up the stairs and through the back door and into the house. The kitchen was a scene of carnage and death. At least two trinities had been torn apart here by an indomitable force. A body had been driven through the fridge. Limbs lay tangled. A red mess was smeared across the kitchen cabinets. I looked away. Jenny! I shouted. Karen! The house was silent. To the upper floor. More bodies of Trinity agents. Trails of bullet holes lit up the walls of the stairwell and the landing. And the artwork I had admired when I first came here was now broken to pieces. My hand pushed open the door to Jenny and Karen's bedroom. There, on the bed squatting over a mound of red-soaked sheets. Tatai lifted Jenny's severed head to its open maw, and it ate from the face. I choked out words. What have you done? Jenny and Karen's bodies had been sectioned into pieces, wrapped in the bedsheets, and Tatai stroked the bloodied length of this desecration with one distended limb, while its mouth parts continued to spasm behind the curtain of Jenny's long, unbraided hair. Stop! I said. Tadai! Stop! No. I made you. I named you. I command you to stop! It emitted a hissing shriek. My reward! Get away from them! I shouted, moving into the room, waving my arms. Tatai sprang away from the bed into the corner of the room, shattering a dresser as it landed, claws embedded in the walls. Its clothes had been shredded into rags from bullets, and the matted hair down its front was dripping with black-red fluid. I fight them all! I protect you! My time in a warm place with food for me! No, 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 mon Tatai, I said. No! This is not what I made you for. 
The golem drew itself into its full height, its misshapen head scraping against the ceiling of the room. It lifted both limbs toward me. It roared. My reward! No! There was no other choice. I had kept it too long. I had lost control. I stretched my hand out toward it. I spoke words of unmaking. A wailing cry of unearthly torture. The body of Tatai flailed and spun in the corner, its talons rending the floorboards and tearing holes in the drywall. Plaster dust rained across the bedroom. No! It screamed. No! I want to live! And it sprang onto the bed. I fell back to the floor and looked up at its terrible, mangled, unfinished countenance. Its eyes, their vertical slit pupils alight with an alien and unknowable intelligence. I had broken its bond with me. I had undone its creation. It should have dissolved into dust. Adai howled down at me, rage and hate. It bounded to the floor. And it leapt through the bedroom window, smashing through the glass, out onto the roof of the house, then out into the night. I gathered myself. There were sirens, fast approaching. All of this was my fault. I stumbled out of Jenny and Karen's bedroom and down the hall, wheezing, hacking a sputtering cough. My left arm had gone completely numb. In my own room, with one hand, I hurriedly stuffed what belongings I could quickly gather into the Hello Kitty backpack. Red and blue lights had begun to strobe through the empty house. There were a great number of police cruisers pulling to a stop on the street outside. I should never have stayed here, in this bed and breakfast, in Park Heights. I put on Nbembam and pulled the brim down. I focused on the doorway into the bedroom, the negative space. Then... I traveled. You're listening to Dark Heights by C.D. Miller, starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. It is produced by Haley Wagreich and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller.